Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Where Do We Begin? Very different kind of guest today. Jackson, who have we got? Yeah, we've got uh, Michael Liner, the leading point scorer of all time for the Wallabies. So very excited. First time we've interviewed someone in the rugby sector. So uh, yeah, very excited. If you know rugby at all, you know Michael Liner. He's won every accolade there is to win. Uh, he's a big pundit now. Uh, in the UK, and we talk about all kinds of stuff. We talk about rugby. He unfortunately had a stroke and has been an absolute inspiration to not only survive it, but live an amazing life post-stroke. So it's an inspirational story. Heaps more stuff in the show. Get straight into it, Jackson. Yeah, let's do it. Let's go. Okay, now I'm super duper excited for this guest. He's a <laughs> member of the Order of Australia. He's in the Sport Australia Hall of Fame, the International Rugby Hall of Fame, the Wallaby Hall of Fame, and he's Australia's record rugby points scorer. And to be honest, I've got absolutely no idea what he's doing here on this show. But anyway, I'd like to welcome him, Michael Liner. How are you? I'm good, thanks, man. How are you guys? You good? Yeah, going as, as well as we can here in Melbourne. Um, as everyone probably knows, we're in lockdown, so it's pretty hard for us, but um, glad to see you in sunny old England. Yeah, it's a bit different over here. It's a, the weather's actually been pretty good and, uh, yeah, this is a strange new world, but and I guess that's incorporated with it being sunny and warm here in England. That's, that's, that's a bit strange also, so, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you've got the bright suns uh, shining outside the window there, look, mm. looking like some pretty good weather for a mid-September day over there in Richmond. It is. Very nice, mate. I've already been out. We're, we're very lucky here. Um, you know, during lockdown and all that sort of thing, we, we have Richmond Park next to us, which is about 3,500 acres of parkland, and the Thames just runs, it's about 100 yards down the road here. So we had sort of plenty of outdoor spaces where we could go and get our one hour of exercise during the day and take the dog out, etc. So we were very lucky in that regard to having the nice open spaces here. Sounds good. Um, we should get into the interview. Sure. So, um, yeah, so tell us about your early life growing up in Queensland. How was that? Well, if I can remember it, um, we, <laughs> we, um, I was born in Brisbane. Um, in, when I was sort of reasonably young, the family moved down to the Gold Coast, um, and that was that was great fun down there. I started going to school down there and um, surfing and playing sort of all sorts of different sports, mainly cricket and um, soccer, um, rugby league as well. So, uh, but the beach was great. Um, that's the one thing I do miss over here in in the UK, living here for for so long, is I do miss the opportunity just to be able to go down to the beach in the morning or in the evenings, etc. But so be it. Um, and then the family in 1974, I know that sounds like ancient history, but we moved up to Brisbane and uh, with Dad had a job up there. So Mum and Dad and my sister and I moved to Brisbane in 74 and I went to a school called uh, Gregory Terrace, which played rugby in the winter, um, but I was mainly a cricketer, so cricket was what I did in the summer and then this new game called Rugby Union that I'd never played before. We played that in the, in the winter and uh, um, and I, I finished school there in 1981 and uh, played first 11 cricket for four years um, at school and first 15 rugby for three years and then upon leaving school I was selected in the Australian uh, schoolboys rugby union team to tour uh, America 
and over here to England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales. I came back from that. That was my first summer out of school where I would have normally played cricket, um, which is what I sort of felt I wanted to do. Um, but then I got selected in this team and they toured over here in December and January. So it was my first summer out of school spent over here in winter over here playing rugby. And then I came back from that tour in January and was picked for the Queensland senior rugby team. And that was it. Um, didn't play cricket again. So selectors made my decision for me. But I guess my childhood was just a pretty happy one. Um, uh, as I said, by the beach, uh, surfing was a lifelong sort of uh, love of surfing that started there. And uh, played all sorts of different sports, which um, I and my wife now try to do with our sons. We've got three boys and, um, you know, introducing them to all sorts of different activities um, is what we see as our role as opposed to saying, you know, I played rugby, therefore you must play rugby. Um, it's far from that. We're very different to that. But it was, yeah, it was a great childhood, a great time, and uh, my parents were very supportive of whatever my sister and I wanted to do. Yeah, now for a sport you never heard of before, we think um, probably turned out all right. But we hear uh, you lived in Oregon in America for yeah, a while. That's and right. Tell us about uh, what it was like living over there and why you were living over there. Um, yeah, you've done a bit of research. Well done. Um, <laughs> now, we went to Oregon. My father is, um, well, both my mother and father, when they first met, were school teachers. And then my father be, um, started to study a little bit further and became a well, a clinical psychologist, and um, then he went over to, decided to go over to Oregon State University to do his uh, doctorate in, in psychology, and we went over there, um, it would have been probably 1978, something like that, that year, and went to school there for six months, my sister and I, while he attended um, university there. Um, we came home after six to eight months and uh, he, he stayed for a while, sort of back and forth a little bit. But uh, it was a really good experience. I was going to play um, uh, soccer over there um, at school. And I remember one afternoon uh, we had a cul-de-sac where we lived and I went to school with my neighbour as well. He was, he was the same age as me. And one afternoon we were out in the street throwing um, the American football as they do over there. You know, they tend to go down the park and have a throw, whereas in Australia we'd go down the park and have a kick. That's the difference between the sports, I guess. But my arm got a bit tired. We're about 20 to 30 yards apart and I kicked it to him. And he sort of was, I punted it to him and he was sort of amazed. He said, how'd you do that? I said, well, I can do it left-footed if you like. Um, so the next day he took me down to the, um, the, the phys ed master who was the teacher who was also the, the football coach, the American football coach, and he said, you've got to see this guy kick. And I wasn't, you know, anything special or anything like that, you know, just normal Australian kid who kicks the football around in the back garden. And um, the coach, without getting all the gear on, said, okay, come outside, we'll have a kick. So I punted the ball and it went about 40 yards or something. He goes, right, you're in the team. <laughs> you're now the punter for the, the, the football team. So... I played American football for that season, which was a great experience, you know, very different from rugby or rugby league, and um, but a good experience with all the kit on and all that sort of thing. So, um, um, but it was, it was, it was, Oregon was a, it was a long time ago, an experience, a great experience. My, um, 
I was very shy and um, at school around because of my accent and being different and all that sort of thing, whereas my sister sort of was a little bit more outgoing and uh, she loved the experience over there. I, I did too. It was a great experience, but I was pleased to get back home um, later that year. Um, but, you know, it was, it was good fun and uh, uh, something that one of those things when you're growing up is all part of the sort of the experiences you get and put together that sort of forms your, your, your adulthood, I guess. Now, if you were speaking to someone in America now or back then or whenever and you mentioned the word rugby or rugby league, are they just like, what are you on about, mate, or do they kind of know what you're talking about? Um, I think it depends where you go. Um, there's certain, um, like in California, a, a lot of the universities, et cetera, they play rugby, uh, rugby union. Um, and, you know, so they're a little bit more aware than they were back in the late 70s, put it that way. I remember at school, for example, we had I did geography at school and I'll never forget this. The, the, the teacher was a guy called Mr Lomax who was sort of, let's say he was from the south and um, and had, you know, real southern sort of drawl, et cetera. And he was the geography teacher and I answered a question or something. He said, where are you from, son? And I said, well, I'm Australia. And he said, <laughs> where's that? Is that an island in the Pacific or something? I said, well, yes, it is, but it's a pretty big one. <laughs> um, so the knowledge of Australians and uh, sort of Anglo-Saxon sports in America back in the late 70s was sort of fairly limited, I would say. But, I, you know, given the communications and TV and all that sort of thing now, I'd say there's a lot more of awareness around the sports, so the Aussie rules and even cricket, I think, um, you know, we get a little bit more of a acknowledgement from over there. Uh, so I think we've moved on from those days. But it's still very minor, rugby and Aussie rules and rugby league are very minor sports in the States, although rugby union sort of started to make a few inroads over there. So you did mention that you played a bit of league. What made you choose between league and union? I was basically the school I went to. The school I went to on the Gold Coast played rugby league. Um, when we moved to Brisbane, the school... Gregory Terrace played rugby union, so that was the reason, basically. Believe it or not, I was uh, in rugby rugby league. We played by weights on the Gold Coast, and I was always fairly stocky and reasonably heavy, not overweight, but just, you know, heavy, heavier than my sort of year group. So I always played a couple of weights up, and uh, but I, I was a second row come number eight, which uh, was far from where I ended up playing rugby union, thank goodness. Yeah, um, I think we'll get onto the whole professionalism thing a bit later. But did sure. you ever have any rugby league clubs in for you before rugby union went professional? Yeah, I did actually. I had quite a few uh, nibbles, let's say. Um, a couple of rugby league clubs from Sydney um, came knocking, and there was one. I remember going to, when I was playing for Australia in rugby union. Um, I, I sort of we worked. We were amateurs and. Um, I was at work one morning and a, a fax uh, came through and it was from St Helens Rugby League Club over here in the UK and it was basically from their chairman or CEO and it was an offer to come and play rugby league over here in the in the UK. That was sort of probably in the early 90s, I would have thought. And uh, it was pretty, it was sort of just their opening gambit and it was uh, fairly substantial. And so I gave that some consideration um, because of the financial security that it would have offered, I guess. Um, but in the end, um, I looked at it and thought, you know, I, I'm sort of 
in the Australian rugby team, playing for Queensland, uh, got a good job. I can go and surf on the weekends. I can, you know, do it's pretty good life I had. And, you know, would I be prepared to give that up to go and live in the, the north of England to play a game that I don't know whether I'd even be any good at it or even whether I'd enjoy it? So weighing all those things up, I decided to stay and, um, and not take up the offer, as I did with the other sort of Sydney Rugby League offers at the time. Um, um, so it, it would have been interesting to have a look, but um, I was pretty happy with my lot, which, uh, you know, um, is the reason why I stayed. Would you mind telling us what those Sydney clubs were? Oh, um, I know North Sydney was one. I don't think they exist anymore, do they? Well, they do, yeah, but not in, so. the, in the league. Yeah, not in the same. And there was a, a couple of others that sort of nibbled around, but North Sydney were pretty pretty uh, uh, keen. They were probably the keenest, I guess. Broncos always sort of sniffed around a little bit, but I don't think they were that serious. So you did you did say you represented Queensland. How proud were you to represent your state, your home state? Yeah, it was, I mean, it was great. Um, it was one of those things, you know, I was 18 years old out of school and Queensland sort of says, okay, you're going to play for your state. You know, I'd only played sort of three club games for, for university. Um, so it was all, all was a bit of a, a rush, I guess, in terms of um, time frame. It was all pretty quick, so you didn't really get huge amount of chance to think about it but um, the first team I played in for Queensland I was the only player um, of the of the actual run on team and the bench that hadn't played for Australia at that time so I was a little bit of the odd one out but they were a really great bunch of guys and helped me along very well as a you know young 18 year old fresh guy out of school so um, but yeah I it was one of those things that you look back on it now and think, gosh, that was quick. It all happened really quickly um, and it was very, really, you know, great, great honour to, to play for your state and then for Australia, et cetera. Um, but it was also your club, playing for your club with your mates that was good fun also. So it was a very, you know, I really didn't have what your sort of gap years and all those sort of things now. I was too busy sort of doing that, and um, which, is, which was once again, not complaining, and I think it was a great, uh, great opportunity, which I took both hands and really enjoyed doing. How much of a step up was the uni level and the state level from your yeah, high school level at Gregory, Gregory Terrace? Yeah, a huge step up, actually. Um, you know, at school, it was, you know, you played against some big guys, but nothing that could, could and, you know, physically I was quite capable at school, you know, um, if I wanted to run, I did, and all that sort of thing and tackling and things like that. But as soon as you, as an 18-year-old, start playing against men that are 10 years older than you and physically harder, stronger, more mature, etc., both physically and mentally, I guess, um, you found that things that you used to take for granted at school, um, you couldn't do that at a higher level. Um, purely, you know, from a, a strength point of view, though, you know, people who are 10 years older than you at that sort of age are much stronger and much more hardened, I guess. So there was a, there was a learning curve around that where, you know, you had to learn that you couldn't do everything that you did at school while you're playing against men, say, for Queensland who, or Australia or whatever. It was a very, um, very interesting time and it, it wasn't all that easy. Um, the first sort of, the first bit was um, because it was all new and, you um, the opposition didn't know much about you and all that sort of thing. But 
often talk about second year syndrome and I definitely had that where things got a little bit harder, you became a little bit more marked, um, oppositions worked you out a little bit more. Um, so expectations were very high as well. So it, it, but the, it was the physical difference between schoolboy and men that I, I, I found the, the toughest to cope with. So you did end up moving to Italy. How did that move come about? And was was the game in Italy professional at that time? Um, I, I moved to, I came to Italy in the season of 91, 92, because the season, the winter stretches over the, the Christmas period here. And there was a couple of reasons for that. One was that um, I'd always, rugby in those days had that's what they had to offer. You know, you had the travel with your, whether it be your club, Australia or Queensland, that while we weren't being paid, that was something that rugby had to offer. You know, you travelled around the place and on tours and things like that. And it always, the other thing was to actually go and play a season or two overseas. And we'd be that Italy or France or now Japan as well. It wasn't quite so big back then, but Italy and France were probably the two options and, I'd always been interested in going to one of those and just for the experience, et cetera, and Italy came knocking a couple of times. But after the 91 World Cup that was scheduled to be played in sort of October, November, um, it just seemed like a good time to be able to go to Italy. Um, I'd been spent the last, the previous 10 years before that running around playing for, you know, the same club, the same state and Australia, all great, but um, it was probably a good time to say, okay, after a World Cup, you know, I'll go, go overseas for six months and see what that's like, experience a different culture, etc. And so I did that and it was great. It was a great experience. It was tough for the first three months. I was there on my own. I couldn't speak the language, etc. but they made me feel very welcome and I also took Italian lessons every day um, so I could actually speak to some of my teammates. So that was, that was helpful. Um, but it's also showed them that I was trying to fit into their culture rather than bringing, you know, my culture to them and saying, you've got to speak English to me. It was the other way around. And I think that's a very important attitude to have. Um, was it Italy um, professional in those days? I, I'd say it was probably um, semi-professional in that house and car and accommodation, et cetera, and all that was expenses, et cetera, was, was looked after. Um, but I, I took leave from my job in Australia, um, so I was in a pretty good financial sort of way in Australia, so I don't think I was any better off by going to Italy financially. What I was better off was for a you know, cultural sort of experience that actually is still with me today in that I met my wife there and, um, uh, you know, <laughs> 25 years later we're still together and I'm still paying for it. So I don't think, <laughs> um, but no, and we still go back to Italy a lot and I love the country and the people there and as I do in Australia and it was just a great experience and I'm, I'm really glad that I took the step to do it. Something I've always wondered, Italy obviously not the biggest rugby nation in the world but Australia, absolutely huge. How much of a kind of... Uh, how much do the players, the Italian players over there, think of you as a bit of like a god, like this Aussie guy coming <laughs> and is this amazing guy from Australia in Italy? What's he doing over here? Yeah, there was a long history of um, sort of foreign players going to Italy, uh, particularly south from the Southern Hemisphere because of the season differences. You know, our season 
would be in our winter and their season in their winter. So there was an opportunity for Southern Hemisphere players to always go there and um, South African, New Zealand and Australia players did. And, you know, some, some players um, that went there loved the experience and fitted in really well and um, still have connections with Italy. Other players went there and saw it as a bit of a bit of a holiday, and you know, withdrew and didn't sort of really get into the into the the whole Italian sort of way of life, etc. And found the rugby very difficult because it could be frustrating at times. Um, the rugby, particularly if you're used to a sort of a more structured, higher level sort of rugby uh, uh, performance, etc. Um, and so. To go there, it was, um, yeah, we just won the World Cup. So, yes, to be put up, I was put on, up on a bit of a pedestal, to be to be sure, because they love a world champion in Italy, and that's how, you know, I was introduced, you know, Michael Lyon, a world champion, regardless that there was 14 other players that helped me get there as well. Um, but, that, but then that doesn't make you um, automatically... Um, a great person or anything like that. It's, you know, it's, it's a matter of trying to fit in. And as I said, I, I took Italian lessons. I spoke to them in Italian when I could, etc. And, and really wanted to become part of the team. And in so doing, that you then try and, when the opportunity's right, you start to try and in, in, impart sort of knowledge and and sort of the way we did things in Australia was very different to the way Italian rugby did things back then. But you don't want to come in and change everything from day one. There's a way to do that over time to sort of help the players and help the coaches, et cetera, and, and help teach them and impart your knowledge. And that's what I tried to do. And, um, you know, I must have done pretty well because we, we were pretty successful and I still have good friends over there that I played with. We were over there in the, in the summer, actually, and uh, during um, the whole COVID crisis here and... and uh, I went to, I took some of my, my two of my sons down to the, the Treviso rugby pitch to, to kick and train, et cetera. And, you know, they were all, all the guys were there and a couple of guys that I played with, et cetera, um, I met up with. So, you know, still very friendly with them. And Italy's a, a big part of my life, um, not only from my wife's point of view, two of my sons, our sons were born there. Um, and, you know, I have good friends there. So it's, 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 uh, but it was a great experience. Um, for me, but I didn't. I didn't go there wanting to change the way they played. Um, I went there trying to help them play better, and in so doing, um, I think you know I made a lot of friends in doing it that way. So, what were some of the differences between the way you did it here in Australia compared to the way they did it in Italy? Yeah, they, they were very much aligned with um, the French way of playing. Um, they saw France as sort of a uh, that was their role models, I would have thought, um, as a team. Um, France were very, uh, at the time, were very, you know, let's just throw the ball up and away we go and we're, we're all very talented and we run and all that sort of thing and there wasn't a lot of structure where Australia and New Zealand were very um, heavily, um, particularly Australia at that time, around, you know, improving your individual skills and then when you surpassing um, catching, you know, kicking, all those sort of individual skills. And and in so doing, therefore, become a better player and then put those skills as a team, as a unit together, practice individually, then go together as a unit and play. So it was a lot more structured, 
a lot more structured, whereas a lot of the Italian-French sort of way was the way to learn your skills is actually just to play the game and you'll learn your skills doing that, whereas Australia, I think, um, at the time was let's practice our individual skills and therefore when you're under pressure in the game, um, those individual skills that you've practised will be able to perform. My, my view is it's a little bit in the middle, a little bit of both. You've got to have experience under pressure to actually perform those skills, but you've got to have some basis to work with and have some skill level to work with as well. So I think it's a bit of both. And um, But, yeah, the, 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 the Italians also, their um, uh, sometimes discipline wasn't great. Um, so <laughs> that was something to deal with. You just sort of... And also there was a mentality of a home and away. Um, you know, we, were very, we had a very strong team, but at home we were almost unbeatable. But you go away we, and the guys just wouldn't perform. You know, they just didn't like being away from home. And uh, that was a very French thing as well. Um, and I, I don't know what the mentality is. You know, the rugby pitch is exactly the same size no matter where you go. And, uh, but it's just the, the crowds were quite hostile, et cetera. So it was, it was a great experience and very different to what I was used to. But um, in a way, it, it, it made me a better rugby player because, you know, I was dealing with different ways and different, different people, different culture um, and a different way of playing the game. Yeah. Now, um, by the time you moved to Saracens, you'd retired from the Wallabies. Of course, we'll get onto the Wallabies a bit later, but... Uh, professionalism was around by then. So can you tell us about the pressure of being this kind of huge name signing for a club in England and moving over there? Yeah, so rugby went professional in 1995, literally overnight. Um, the IRB was, was called in that time, um, the International Rugby Board, just said, okay, rugby's professional now. And so over here in England, there was a number of wealthy individuals that um, acquired clubs, and Saracens was one of those. And I remember being in Italy at playing for Treviso in 95 and we used to go up to the office and I'd get mail back in those. Remember, you probably don't even remember getting letters, but we used to get letters. <laughs> the internet was very in its infancy in those days. And so I'd go to the office before training in the evenings and there'd be mail from Australia. And then oh, there was this letter from England and it was from a guy called Nigel Ray who basically introduced himself and said he'd just... Um, uh, purchased Saracen's rugby team and would I be interested in talking to him about coming and playing there the next year. Anyway, long story short, my wife and I decided that would be good for us, as I told you earlier about being married, etc., and neutral ground in terms of London. So we arrived at um, Saracen's in, to play the 96-97 series, uh, season so it was a big change. We just got married in 96, in July 96. We went on our honeymoon and came straight from our honeymoon to London and basically um, arrived, uh, rented a flat and that we'd done the month before and um, <laughs> sat in a flat that had no furniture and it sort of arrived at various stages during the days and uh, I had to go to training at that night. So it was, a, it was a big change. It was a huge change. And in, in some ways I found it more difficult than going to Italy. Um, the English players were um, a lot more reserved than, say, the, the Italians. They, they were welcoming, but here was Michael coming over, huge, as you said, you know, big name, um, big money, um, professional, you know, it's a very different environment. And um, 
It was. It wasn't easy. It was. It wasn't easy. And rugby really didn't know what being professional meant. Yes, it meant being paid, but did it mean turning up to training at nine o'clock in the morning and going home at five, um, which is what we used to do. And some players were still working, others weren't. So there was this huge sort of um, discovery period around what it meant to be a professional rugby team and that, well, not just the first season but the first decade, I would think. Um, the first season we sort of finished mid-table and the second season we had a great year and we ended up winning the, the Cup at Twickenham, which was my last game in front of 80,000 people, which was a great game of rugby and uh, a very good memory. And so to finish the career on that sort of note was, was fantastic and still, once again, a bit like Italy, have great friends from that um, Saracens era, whether it be English or Irish or Welsh or South African or, you know, other, Philippe Seller from France played with us, etc. So it was a great, great um, environment. Um, the biggest difference, I guess, um, apart from being paid to play, was that as a goal kicker, I, I, I sort of realised that a lot of my teammates were being um, paid win bonuses and as a goal kicker, you have a big say on whether your team wins or not. So yeah. I found that pressure um, of actually being responsible as to whether people um, earned money that week was a very different pressure to what I'd been used to. And um, my, uh, I guess my solution to that was to go and practice a lot more. And I, I had time to do it because that's what I did. I was a professional rugby player, so I could go and practice. That was what I was supposed to do. So I did. And not only did my teammates see that, but I also, um, my percentages improved a great deal. And uh, therefore, we're all sort of, it was, it, was, it was a good result, I guess. And they, we performed very well. We didn't lose many games. We won a lot more than we, we lost. And um, so financially, everybody was better off. But also as a team, we, you know, we were winning and that's, that was the aim of, of, of playing, I guess. Um, but that was the biggest change in pressure, you know, actually kicking goals meant financial um, differences for, for my teammates and me, I guess. Um, so that was a different pressure to what I was used to. So going back to your welcoming at Saracens, you did mention that the English players were sort of a little bit standoffish. Do you think that's more of a sense of the English being sort of com- like at the same level as Australia or compared to Italy being a little bit lower than Australia, them looking up to you, whereas the English see you as like a true competitor, like right next to each other? No, I don't think it was anything to do a, a sort of around that. Um, I think there's a, there's, there's a genuine rivalry between England and Australia, no matter what sport, but particularly cricket and rugby. Um, and, and I, I guess that, you know, English, um, you know, I've got some great English friends. Um, they tend to be a little bit more reserved um, at first sort of contact, you know. Oh, you know, what's, what's this guy Liner like? Um, is he going to be a big head who, you know, wants the royal treatment and the red carpet rolled down on the wet, muddy ground before he goes out to training, et cetera, you know, or is he going to, you know, is he going to muck in and be one of us? And so there was various sort of tests, et cetera, that, you know, were subtle, yet I knew what they were. And if you, there was one in particular that sticks in the memory and it was early on and um, we were doing a defensive drill where, you know, two lines and basically 
one got one line person ran with the ball and the other person at the head of that line had to tackle it. And it was sort of quite clear to me that they'd put a rather a large, um, strong and um, particularly um, nasty sort of forward opposite me and said, line a tackling. And he had about a 20 metre run up. And I knew that this was a test, you know, either, I, you know, don't want to get dirty or get hurt and just let him go through or I make a tackle on him and, um, you know, put down a marker and say I'm here, you know, look, I'm not going to shirk anything. So for once in my life I closed my eyes and <laughs> ran at him and tackled him really hard and everybody sort of, okay, all right. Um, and so you sort of those sort of tests but I just think it's a little bit more that the English are a little bit more... Um, conservative and once they get to know you they're fine absolutely fine we're Italians a little bit more you know we've all seen Italians at the airport they open their arms and embrace you straight away um uh so it's just that English reserve and you know Australians are a little bit like that as well until you get to know somebody a little bit better um you know you're just a little bit standoffish um but once you know you break down the barriers it's like going to a new new school you know, once you find a couple of mates and away you go, you're fine. Um, and, and, you know, no airs or graces. And I I'm, I'm, I'm was very, you know, just because you win a World Cup or play for your country, as I've said earlier, doesn't make you a decent person. It makes you a success, but, it, you know, being a decent person is more important to me than all that sort of stuff. Now, of course, we've mentioned the professionalism during your time there, but once that uh, change in setup happened, did you notice not only a difference in the quality of the play, but also like the type uh, of support you got from the fans and the amount of support you got from the fans? Um, not immediately, um, because I think rugby was still working it out. And it, take it now, where we're 25 years down the track, absolutely, there's a huge difference in the way the game's played, the physical makeup of the players, the fans, um, et cetera, et cetera. But back in the, you know, the first sort of two years of professionalism, there wasn't a huge amount of change. And that was one of the things that I think, you know, fans would come to the game because they liked rugby. They didn't all of a sudden decide to go and watch rugby because you were being paid. They were traditional sorts of fans. And I think, you know, maybe there was... um, more things around, you know, TV became bigger and then and sort of players became more, not celebrities, not the word, but, you know, more well-known, I guess, and uh, so the game evolved like that. Um, initially, I don't think there was a huge amount of difference. It, the only difference being was that we were being paid and, and training during the days where it used to be, you know, you'd go to work during the day and then train at night. Um, so that there were subtle changes like that, but... For me, the first two years wasn't that much difference from what I'd been doing the previous sort of 15 or whatever it was. So moving on to your Wallabies career, your illustrious Wallabies, Wallabies career, um, you made your de- debut at 20 against Fiji. How is that for you, representing your country? Um, it was great. Uh, <laughs> I, I went on that Fijian trip uh, in, in, in 1983, it was. That was my... Um, uh, no, sorry, it's 84, you're right, 84, that's right. I, I had my first Australian trip in 83. We went to, we had a tour to Italy and France and played, you know, and I was on the bench for a number of tests that year but never got on. Uh, it's very different to now. You could only go on the field if um, 
somebody was was injured and uh, medically sort of you had to replace them. Um, but in 84, against Fiji, I uh, went on that tour and um, I, got a, I got a place in the test team because Michael Hawker, who was the incumbent number 12, which is where I played, um, he, he was on his honeymoon and decided not to tour. And so I got to play 12. But I just remember it being announced and, you know, it was, it was a very proud sort of moment he, you know, and um, then going out to play. The game itself wasn't particularly memorable. We played in Suva and it was, uh, I think it was about a foot underwater and mud everywhere. And so I, th- I think it was 12-6 the result. You could, you could hardly walk little and run in the pitch. So it was pretty tough. Um, but we got there in the end and... Uh, yeah, it was just, you know, it was, as I said earlier, it all happened very quickly. Um, but, uh, you know, to get that first jumper, first jersey was a particularly proud moment and one that I've still got. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned um, playing number 12 there inside centre. Uh, it's got some kind of shared characteristics, traits with the fly half, I guess. But was that somewhere, mm. a specific position that you'd played before at all? No, um, you're right. It has back then they were not dissimilar positions, and uh, Mark Eller was the uh, fly half in 1983-84, and so he was fairly entrenched in that position. And I, I, I guess the the string to my bow that I had that was important to the team was that I was a goal kicker, and goal kicking is very important in in rugby. So um, they found a place for me at 12, um, which allowed Mark to stay there and found a slot for me. And so um, the positions are now quite a bit different, but um, back then, you know, New Zealand called them first and second half, you know, first and second um, five-eighth, because uh, they're they're similar and they complement one another back in those days. Now the number 12 tends to be um, quite a bigger physical sort of specimen than, say, I was. So you were part of the 1982 Grand Slam. How big was that for the team? Yeah, that was, a, that was an amazing uh, tour. Um, the, we, we, were, we weren't given much of a chance. There wasn't, a, you know, it wasn't um, sort of we weren't heralded as, as the, a team that was possible to, to win the Grand Slam for the first time. Uh, the previous tour to us um, was 81-82 tour over here and they were sort of, you know, when they left the Shores, Australian Shores, it was like, oh, this is a great team, this is going to be a big chance to win the, you know, the much feathered Grand, Grand Slam and they didn't do that. But 84, it was a great tour. We worked really hard. We had a new coach in Alan Jones who sort of brought a degree of um, planning and training that we hadn't had before. Um, it was a new way of doing things. It was a lot harder than the way we did things, but we also prepared a lot better. And um, we had a great, a successful tour, not just the the test matches, but all the way through. And it was a good bunch of guys, you know, a good bunch of guys who mixed well. Um, and we were playing a really good, um, enjoyable brand of rugby and we were winning at the same time. So it was a great tour. And to end up winning the Grand Slam, you know, it, was, um, it hadn't been done before by an Australian team. Um, and to be, you know, what, what age was I at that time? 20, 20 and then turned 21 on the tour. You know, it was a great, I was at uni at the time and here I am playing for my country in a sport that I love, um, travelling around UK and Ireland with, 
you know, 20 odd mates of mine, um, staying in nice hotels, all sorts of things, all food provided for us. I mean, what's there not to like? I mean, it was fantastic, great fun. And I, you know, I wouldn't spoken about quite a bit, you know, would you change those sort of memories for being a professional now? No way. Um, that they were, you know, it was a very special time. Yeah, uh, if the, any of the listeners don't know about it, that Grand Slam in 84, it's the only time Australia's ever done the Grand mm. Slam in history uh, for rugby, which is an amazing achievement, really. But uh, you mentioned Alan Jones briefly there. People know him for his radio and his TV <laughs> stuff over here, but what was he like as a coach for rugby? No, oh, Alan Jones is not that well-known over there, is he? <laughs> <laughs> um, he was, um, well... Alan, he was, he brought into the team a degree of, I mentioned sort of planning. Before he came along, we sort of, oh, who are we playing this weekend? Oh, France. Okay, well, we'll just, you know, we'll play a bit of touch at training and, you know, then I'll, there wasn't really, you know, a huge amount of um, video analysis that you see these days or anything, that sort of thing. It didn't really exist. And then Alan started to look at the opposition who we were playing. So he, he started to do a lot more preparation around how we would beat the various teams that we played. So then we'd train the previous week to to do those things that we were planning against the opposition. So this is something that sounds normal now, but back then rugby really didn't do it to any great extent. And we also trained a lot harder. Um, a lot more physical, a lot more conditioning, etc. So we're all pretty fit. And um, so there was a lot of changes in that regard. And Alan was also a great um, talker, surprisingly enough, <laughs> given that that's his job. Um, but he was a talker, and I don't like using the word motivation, but he, he understood how to get a team heading in the right direction. And not, you know, not every player liked what he'd say or do. Uh, or the way he trained, but at the end, um, results came because of that, um, because of the preparation we did, because of how fit we were and how good we were as a team and also the direction that he provided. So I'd say back in 84, he, he was um, a very um, inventive and, and, and new sort of style of coach that um, was a huge part of our success in 84. Yeah, uh, you mentioned that. Great team chemistry, I guess you had, but I got got to ask: Was that the best team you've played in? You've played in some great ones. Um, yeah, it was probably one of them. Um, the team, the team that won. When you say the Grand Slam, it's the Grand Slam is when you win against England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales on one tour. And um, the team changed a little bit throughout that, but as a squad, as a whole squad, I think that was the key because we only had, I think, we had twenty seven people on that tour which is quite small. We played 19 games and four of those were test matches plus a Barbarians game at the end. So it wasn't, and we were away for two and a half months. So it was, it's not sort of go in, play a test, come out, play another, you know, like it is now. So as a team, we had to, we were away for a long time. We are in each other's pockets and, you know, it was a pretty happy team. And I think um, it was one of them, one of the, one of the teams that I was involved in that was a great team. Um, 86, Jones, Alan Jones took us to New Zealand and we became the first team to win a three-test match Bledisloe Cup Series in New Zealand, the first Australian team to do so. Um, that was tough. 
That was a tough tour, but once again, that was a. It wasn't probably as good a team as the '84 tour, but we were, we were just very, very tough team. And then, of course, the '91 World Cup winning team. I think that was a great squad as well. Um, they're the sort of three major ones that I would say that, as from an Australian point of view, that I was involved in, and um, that we were, were great teams, but very different. So we will, we will move on to the '91 team, but. Talking about the 87 World Cup, the first ever Rugby Union World Cup, um, on home soil, how big was that for the team and the country at that time? Yeah, well, uh, 87 was the first World Cup, as you said, and it, it wasn't that big, believe it or not, um, compared to what it is today. Um, the, you know, six months before that World Cup um, wasn't really... Um, Nobody knew whether it was going to go ahead. I don't think the Northern Hemisphere wanted a Rugby World Cup. Um, it was more Australia and New Zealand that sort of wanted it. Um, in the, it. It did go ahead. It was both hosted by Australia and New Zealand. New Zealand had the final. Um, it was quite um, – it wasn't sort of what you'd call – you wouldn't say it like a World Cup is now, Rugby World Cups, you know, a world, big, huge event in the world um, sport. And everybody knows about it and it's very sort of coordinated and brought together well. Back then it was um, a bit different. Um, you know, part of it was being played over in New Zealand, part of it was being played in Australia and because, you know, it just didn't really feel as much a part of a tournament that, say, people would now um, from a rugby point of view. Um, from an Australian point of view, we played our games in Brisbane and Sydney but and the team was made up of basically people from Brisbane and Sydney, a couple of, I think Campo was from the ACT still at that time. But it, we were in Sydney for a vast majority of that and a lot of the Sydney players continued to work, including our coach, Alan. He, Alan Jones, continued to work in the mornings. So training was in the afternoon. So you had a, half the team of Queenslanders who were sitting at a hotel. Um, you know, what do we do? Um, we've got nothing to do in the mornings. So, you know, that sort of led to people going out at night a little bit, et cetera. So we probably weren't as disciplined as what we should have been. But it was a very, you know, you're almost touring within your own country, which wasn't easy, particularly when half the squad were at home and um, and working as well. And so it sort of was very different, say, to the 91 one where we were together for, you know, six, seven, eight weeks and all together and really united in our front. Um, having said that, 87, we weren't. Uh, we lost to France in the last ditch uh, try by Serge Blanco in the semi-final and uh, so that was a great disappointment it, but it was a it was a pretty happy sort of uh, time um, wasn't you know wasn't a, an unhappy experience it was just a very different one and it was a new one because we weren't used to there was, there was the first World Cup so none of us knew what to to expect um, nor did we realize that it was going to be become as big as it has yeah um Obviously, you didn't know exactly what to expect, but maybe there was like a little, oh, I hope there's a bit of this, I hope there's a bit of that going on. But what was the reality, not just in terms of results, but in terms of the whole setup like uh, for the first World Cup? Was it fully like slick and glam and all that kind of stuff or no? Oh, no. God, no, no, it wasn't. We stayed at the Camper Bay uh, Travel Lodge. Um, no, it wasn't, it wasn't slick at all. It was... It, as I said, it's a, it's a, it was a new thing um, and it wasn't, you know, I'm not saying Camperdown Travel Lodge was bad. It was just like, you know, it wasn't, 
wasn't what you'd expect in terms of what they get now. Um, and that was fine. We were happy. Um, and it was very, very different. It was just a different experience. It was a long time ago. And, uh, um, for example, we, we lost the semi-final, um, and this was just sort of knowledge about the tournament, um, we lost the semi-final to France, which was very disappointing. Our tournament was over, so we thought. And then the manager came into the dressing room and basically said, well, you know, bags down at the hotel tomorrow morning at 7 o'clock. And we said, what for? You know? <laughs> and he said, well, we've got to go to Rotorua tomorrow to play the third and fourth playoff. And we, we didn't know that it was a third and fourth playoff um, as players. We didn't really want to be there, so but we didn't know there was one that we had to go and do. So it was sort of... Um, it was finding its feet as as a tournament, as a tournament. And I'm, I'm you know, glad that I was there at the start because it has now become. I think it's the third or fourth biggest sporting event in the world every went every four years, and you know it's a great event and great for rugby and provides a lot of um, great entertainment for the fans, great memories for the players, and also important finance for World Rugby to distribute to the growth of the game. So it's a fantastic event, and it's evolved into that. Um, so I was, I was sort of pleased to be at the start where it was a little bit more, um, not a little bit more uh, amateurish and uh, and not quite what it is today. So moving on to the next one, was that a little bit uh, more built up? Yeah, seeing it as in, in England, definitely like just built up more more experienced than the first one. Yes, it was, and the. You felt a little bit more like you were part of a tournament as well um, because of the the TV was sort of had improved as well. So the coverage of the tournament, um, the the groups were, you know, even though it was in Ireland, France, England, Scotland and Wales, um, geographically they were, it was, it was, the timings of the matches meant that when you weren't playing you could watch the other ones and you felt like you were a part of a tournament. Um, and so it was a little bit better organised, um, you know, and, and probably um, the administrators, et cetera, had the experience with the first one. This is the second one. What can we learn from it? And they learned quite a lot from it. So it was a lot. You felt as a player more part of a tournament and it was bigger. Um, the press coverage was, was bigger over here in the UK at the time. TV, as I've mentioned, was a little bit better. Um, um, and the fact that we won the thing made, made, made it much more enjoyable, I guess. Um, yeah. But same thing, we had a very, um, you know, a very happy team. We didn't have a lot of injuries. We, we had a lot of experienced players in important positions. And we had a lot of young players who were very good. And as that blend of talent and um, experience, et cetera, and uh, maturity, um, that, was, that was important. And it just all came together very, very well. And it was a very happy sort of period, six to seven weeks, and uh, and very happy towards the end, obviously, because we won the thing. Yeah. Um, now, I'm not sure how much of the Australian media coverage you got over there while you were over there, but did you have much of a kind of win or it's a failure mentality? Was there much of that? Um, we, had, um, we had some inkling as to, as the tournament grew and we grew into it as a team um, and started to play better and, you know, continue to win. Um, we were aware that um, the support back home, and not just in New South Wales or Queensland, the traditional sort of rugby heartland, but all over the country. And I, I think um, 
it was sort of a factor that you know, the World Cup was being held at a time when there probably wasn't a lot of other sport going on in Australia. The cricket season hadn't really got underway yet, etc. So, and so while in, in, in those days there wasn't, you know, there wasn't the internet or the instantaneous sort of streaming or etc. that you get nowadays, but um, as the tournament built, we, we got a, um, an inkling that the interest at home in Australia was very strong. Um, particularly towards the, you know, the semis and the final. Um, and, you know, you know, a lot of friends who were having, you know, parties, et cetera, that would watch the game in the evening. Um, every hotel we were at um, was inundated. They had to put, you know, extra banks of fax machines, fax machines, remember those, um, to actually cope with all the faxes that were coming through of good luck from home, et cetera. So, you know, there wasn't, we, we did know there was a lot of support back home, yes. So you were the third most experienced player in that squad. Did that help you a lot, being a leader in that team? I like how you say the most exper- third most experienced. Does that mean I'm the third oldest? Is that is that what you? <laughs> no, you, you played the th- no, you played the third most tests for Australia at that point. Yeah, we had, as I mentioned earlier, we had a we had you know um, myself um, in, at fly half, which is a key position. Nick Far Jones, who was captain at halfback, uh, were he was. Pretty experienced as well. Campo out in the wing, you know, had a great tournament, great talent. Um, he was experienced as well. We'd, we'd all sort of started playing around the same time together. Um, and just in the back line, you know, you had those sort of three experiences. And then you put between between us um, Tim, Tim Hoare and Jason Little, who were very young at that stage, but extremely talented. So when you have that blend of this youthful enthusiasm of talent um, around some sort of older guys with a little bit of experience, et cetera. Um, that's a great blend. And we had the same in the forward pack, you know, with guys like Poitivan and these sort of Phil Kearns and these – well, Phil Kearns, he was still pretty young, but, you know, Kearns, I'm sorry, um, uh, Poitivan, et cetera, that were, were experienced and been around the block um, and put the, the young sort of uh, talent around them. And so it's just a great blend. It's a great blend that we had. So, um yeah, and that's just that's that's not. It's very hard to plan for that. It sort of just happens, and there's a bit of luck involved. There's also a bit of luck in that we didn't have too many injuries throughout the tournament. Um, so, from for the vast vast majority of games, we could pick from everyone in the squad, which was important as well. So it's the game day of the final. You're against England at Twickenham. Talk us through your build-up and all your preparations, all the stuff you do before the game. Talk us through that. Um, you mentioned Twickenham. Twickenham's about a mile down the road from where I live at the moment. When, I, when we first we, – we, before this house we live in, we lived over in Twickenham. It's about – and uh, when we first moved there um, probably about six, seven years ago to Twickenham, I, I remember I was in, in town and in London and got in the back of a black cab and – the guy sort of looked in the rear vision mirror, the driver looked in the rear vision mirror and looked at me and said, where to? Where to, mate? Yeah, I said, oh, Twickenham. And he, he said to me, where else would you be going? And I said, well, I don't, I don't live at the stadium. <laughs> so he, he, all he did was talk about rugby the whole way home. And so, yeah, it's funny that, I, you know, winning the World Cup um, in 91 at Twickenham, I, I'm sort of still here uh, being gravitated towards it. Um, we, we, so on that game day, obviously, extremely tense and nervous sort of day. We were out at a hotel called Oatlands Park out um, not not too far from here actually in Weybridge 
And it was sort of a lovely big old country hotel, um, the country Weybridge is a suburb. Um, and but it had a nine-hole golf course around it and and sort of lots of open parks. So after breakfast, instead of sitting around and getting more nervous, etc., I, I always, before big games, would try and go for a bit of a walk and a bit of a kick if I could. And so I went out on my own. It was quite cold and grey and sort of misty, not wet, but, you know, dewy sort of stuff. And I took a ball with me and went for a bit of a kick and got tired of walking after the ball. And I remember there was this little creek with a bank on the side of it. And um, so instead of kicking the ball and having to run after it, I, I actually kicked up the bank and let the ball roll down, trying to save some energy. But that's what I sort of used to do on, on game days is get out and do a little bit of phys- physical sort of activity, have a kick and have a bit of a walk in the morning, try and release that sort of tension. Um, I don't remember too much about the build-up um, other than, you know, I just wanted to get onto the field and, and start playing. Um, I, I, I didn't really enjoy the nerves um, before a game, um, particularly nervous around goal kicking and that sort of thing. Um, but once out in the field, it was a very tight match. I think both teams um, didn't really want to lose the game and more as opposed to taking the attitude of let's just go out and win this thing, which we'd done previously, particularly the week before against the All Blacks, which was probably the best sort of game we played the whole tournament, particularly the first half. We just went out and won the, won the game in the first half. Against England, we knew we were the better team, but that doesn't necessarily give you the right to win the game. And so we had to go and do it. And England were very dogged and very dour, good defence, all that sort of thing. And it was a very conservative sort of match. So not a great game. Um, but we got there in the end. And I just remember at the end it was, you know, overriding sort of sensation of relief as opposed to, you know, absolute joy. Of course there was happiness and joy and all that, but it was more a sense of relief that actually, you know, there was the opportunity um, we took it and, and and that was my overriding sense. So you did end up winning it. How were the celebrations after? <laughs> um, having said that, was the relief was short-lived and it got pretty happy pretty quickly, I must say. Um, we, you know, we had a good celebration in the dressing room, et cetera, and then we are all into the bus um, to go into central London for a dinner that night, which is the end of the Rugby World Cup dinner with, you know, trophies and all that sort of thing. And, then we had friends and family, et cetera, back to the hotel where we were staying outside London. And by the time we got back to the hotel, it was about midnight. So the party was well underway um, when we got back there. And uh, needless to say, there wasn't a huge amount of sleep that night. And we were actually reasonably early on the bus um, to go to the airport to fly home the next day. So, um, um, but, yes, on the flight home, the... Um, couple of guys sort of paraded the trophy around the plane and all that sort of thing. So it was, um, it was, it was, it was a great um, time um, in terms of, you know, you know, the World Cup, even though it was just the second World Cup, it actually had a huge amount of meaning and um, continues to do so this day. And we had a ticker tape parade back in, Mel- uh, back in Sydney when we got home and I remember talking to Nick about it. We were very nervous that nobody would turn up, you know. It'd be our mum and dad and brother and sister on the side of the road waving to us. And, but it was, it was a great experience as well because it was, you know, just 
all the streets of Sydney as we went through the CBD there were lined with people and all that sort of thing. And that's when we realised just how much support we had back at home at the time. We had that, as I mentioned earlier, the inkling of it, but it was a huge event and really a great thing for rugby off the back of that, you know, um, sponsorship and TV and interest from kids in playing the game um, really sort of uh, peaked. Yeah, and then um, the next World Cup after that, Fair to say, probably a bit of a disappointment, uh, knocked out by England uh, early in the quarterfinals. So, uh, and that was your last international um, tournament, I guess. So, uh, yeah. what was the kind of disheartenment uh, in your own <laughs> mind and the team's collective mentality like? Yeah, it was um, very disappointing, um, obviously. And, but I, I guess the, the disappointment sort of over time has been tempered with the fact that um, came to the realisation that, you know, we, we, we weren't good enough. We just weren't good enough. And um, we lost the first game to South Africa who ended up going on and winning winning the World Cup at that tournament. Um, and, you know, the All Blacks were very, very strong. Um, arguably, you know, it took a long time for the, the Springboks to, to defeat the New Zealanders in the final. Um so then England beat us in the, in the, in the quarters, as, you, as you've mentioned. Um, so I, we had, you know, we, we had a team that was young um, and there was, it was just one of those things that I, I just don't think we were good enough. Even if we got to the semi-final, we would have met New Zealand who, you know, maybe we would have got lucky and played a great game and all that. So that's the great hope. But if you look at it on paper and the way New Zealand were playing and the way we were playing, New Zealand would have won nine times out of ten. And, you know, South Africa who had already beaten us and England beat us by a drop goal, um, would we have gone any further in the tournament had we beaten England? Probably not. Um, But I would have liked to have had the chance. Um, but I sort of, you know, I'm sort of consoled by the fact that it's. It, I don't think we were as strong a squad as we 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 um, uh, should have. We weren't as strong as what we could have been, and and we probably weren't strong enough to go any further in the tournament anyway. So it was, yeah, it was a disappointing way to finish my international career. But you know, you can't you can't write write the last chapter every time. So um, retirement in 1995, you were captain at that stage and uh, you were world record point scorer as well. But uh, what were the factors in your head that uh, made you decide to retire in 95? Um, I'd, I'd, I'd had enough. Um, 95, I was sort of, what, 32 or something like that. Um, um, I was getting married the following year. My, my, my fiance at the time lived in Italy, so that wasn't easy. Um, um, and, you know, I had work to do. I, you know, I'd been playing rugby for a long period of time and just felt, you know, while it's great and it's given me everything and still does, but I, I, I had to move on. You know, I had to move on and start doing some other things. And um, so that seemed like a pretty good time to me to do it. Um, you know, it, it, I'd, I'd done everything I really wanted to do um, and I thought while I was still, you know, picked in the team, et cetera, um, it was a good time to go rather than being told to go, you know, by being dropped, et cetera. So um, I still had another, you know, two years at Saracens after that which were were enjoyable and successful as well. But, I, you know, I'd, 
I was always this person that didn't want to retire from rugby, then a year later miss it and say, I'm coming back. And um, the test for me was in 96, a year later after I retired, we were in Australia and I was actually, it was the weekend after we got married in Italy and came to Australia to part of the honeymoon, but also to um, have a party in Australia for our friends there that couldn't make the wedding in Italy. And um, I remember watching a Australia play New Zealand on the Saturday in a Bledisloe Cup match, and I was sitting in the stands, the first test I'd watched since I'd retired, and my wife asked me how I felt, and I said, you know what, I'm so pleased to be sitting up here and not sit, not down there battling against the Harker in New Zealand. You know, I'd had enough of doing that. Great memories, but life moves on, and for me, 95 was the right time to do that. So what are you up to these days? What's, what's on for your post-career? Um, well, since I retired um, in 98, I've basically been working, I guess, and um, we've, you know, we have our family here. We've got three boys um, at various stages in their lives. Um, I work away and play a bit of golf and try and keep as fit as I can. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's sort of... A little bit more sedate than what I used to play in the rugby days, but they, they, rugby, as I said, has given me everything. You know, whether it be you know meeting my wife, now the family, um, jobs, I guess, um, and also great memories. So I look back on it fondly, and and you know I retired at the right time and I was ready, and um, met a lot of great people, um, been to a lot of great places around rugby, and. So now, you know, life moves on and I'm quite comfortable with that. I don't necessarily um, like sort of reminiscing too much into the past. I sort of try and look forward a little bit. But every now and then it's nice like this to, to talk about the good old days. Now, uh, in 2012, very, very scary moments. Uh, you suffered a stroke, which was uh, potentially very life-threatening. Uh, you hear a lot about sufferers, uh, victims or sufferers of strokes that their life, uh, it's they've got pre-stroke life and then post-stroke life. Mm. Do you feel that in yourself, like your life has just completely changed post-stroke or uh, have you kind of got back to normality? Um, it's a good question. Um, I was very lucky with, with the stroke in that I got through it um, and also without too much um, sort of uh, after effects. Um, I, I lost half the sight my site, um, which I still deal with, um, but it's, you know, I just get used to it. I've got some funny feeling down my left side, etc., particularly my leg, but, you know, I'll take that. Um, but generally life sort of goes on. Um, a lot of people ask a similar question, you know, do you look at life differently post-stroke? And I sort of, you know, you hear a lot of people sort of say, you know, I take every day now it's my, as it's my last and all that sort of thing. I was very aware that I'd had a, a, a pretty blessed life before I had my stroke. Um, I was aware of it and grateful for it and celebrate's not the right, right word, but I, I knew it and I liked it and I liked my life. And um, so, therefore, post-stroke, it wasn't sort of, oh, gosh, I've got to change my life. I've got to really now enjoy myself because actually I quite enjoyed myself before it as well. So I don't think it's changed um, things, my outlook all that much. I guess it, it really does make you appreciate 
the people that you have around you and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, it emphasises that. But I was aware of all that beforehand and grateful for that beforehand. It didn't need a stroke to remind me of that, um, um, but it did. <laughs> so, um, and I just sort of, you know, I was lucky, very lucky to have got through that and be relatively unscathed and also be educated about stroke and, and also to try and assist where I can um, for, to help stroke survivors, et cetera, and help raise awareness of stroke because um, it is a, a very damaging, damaging thing that doesn't really get the um, sort of uh, public awareness or support, financial support, um, that it probably deserves compared to other illnesses, et cetera. So um, I'm just very lucky to be here. And, um, and yeah, it has, I don't think it's fundamentally changed my outlook on life or the way I sort of look at it. Um, but uh, I'm grateful and I was grateful before and I'm grateful now. So we do have a listener question about that. Um, one of our listeners, Sharban, would like to know how it's changed your life after the stroke. And what was the worst outcome, not being able to drive or your handicapping golf dropping from <laughs> 7 to 12? Um, I guess the, the sight was the, the biggest thing um, and that still affects things to today um, but not as much as it used to. Um, I didn't drive for three and a half years um, but managed to get my licence back, so I do drive now. Um, so if you see me out in the road, stay aware. Um, but that was, that was, I think, from a family sort of personal point of view, being able to, to drive again was such a big thing, particularly with three young boys at the time all playing sport in schools and, for, you know, so it was a lot of pressure on my wife at the time when I couldn't drive. Um, and it was also expensive, you know, taxis and all this sort of thing. So... Um, being able to get my licence back and become sort of independent a little bit again uh, and to sort of go and watch my son play cricket like I did on the weekend is a nice thing to be able to do. Um, the golf handicap, um, <laughs> that it was quite interesting because I almost gave the game away. I didn't play for a year and a half and I love, I love golf. And um, I always started playing again. I, I could... I, couldn't hit the ball very well and couldn't see most of it and um, putting wasn't great. And I, got, I remember playing one day and I got so frustrated in that I couldn't put the ball in the hole um, um, just purely because I just kept, you know, all my alignment was out and all sorts of things. And I came home and I said to Isabella, my wife, I said, that's it, I'm giving up golf. And she sort of said, no, just you shouldn't. A, you, you know, you're lucky to be out there and B, it's such a, you know, just treated as another obstacle that you have to overcome, treated as a goal to be able to play golf again and enjoy it. So I thought to myself, well, you know, what wife would tell their husband to go and play more golf? I thought, <laughs> but she was right. And so I, I sort of, rather than wanting to become super competitive and, you know, get my handicap down, it was more um, I'm lucky to be out here walking around and hitting a ball with some mates. Um, so I enjoy it as opposed to, trying to get down, you know, and shoot a low score. Um, having said that, I still try and I've got back down to nine now. I never can play to it, but um, uh, it's, it's nice to just get out. That's the, so that's the way I sort of look at it now. But life hasn't, life didn't, I was lucky. Life changed for a, 
six to eight months afterwards. It changed a lot in terms of what I could and couldn't do. Um, um, work was affected. I you know, lost a couple of a, a particular consultancy, et cetera, that I had because of it. Um, it put a lot of pressure on my family over here. Um, but gradually we all got through it and, you know, we've come out the other side and very lucky to do so. Yeah, mate, it's just super inspirational and a real credit to your mindset, the way you've um, just got back after that. It's amazing. And if you are interested in that, any of the listeners, you've got a book called Blindsided, which I would highly recommend. So get your hands on that if you can. But I've got one more question about rugby, Michael. Sure. So uh, we've been gone a while. So let's just say that Jackson and I – Jackson and I, uh, we're some big bosses at Rugby Australia and Australian rugby, not going too well. I'm in a bit of a bad state, so I'm going to give you one minute to pitch to us <laughs> how to fix up Australian rugby. <laughs> Mate, wow, what a question that is. One minute. <laughs> Might need a bit longer than that. Look, I, I, I'm, I follow Australian rugby very closely. Um, I read all the Australian press and talk to, to people there. So, you know, I'm very interested and very aware of what's going on. And it's it's sad that rugby sort of got itself into a position that it's in. Um, I'm quite, rather than sort of tell you what I think should happen, um, I'm quite happy that um, we have the chairman, you know, Hamish um, McLennan now there and trying to settle things down and, and to look um, at how, how to go forward with the rugby. The one thing I will say is that traditionally in Australian rugby, we've, you know, you play for your school, your junior club, then you go to a club, then you go to your state if you're any good, and then Australia. So that pathway was the sort of traditional sort of pathway. Now, I'm not saying that tradition is always a good thing to follow. You know, you've got to change and you've got to evolve. But in terms of rugby, I think that's a a good sort of pathway that, you know, we, we tend to fo- have followed and brought a success in the past. We've seemed to, with professionalism, we seem to have lost that a little bit and a lot of funding goes to the top of the game and um, the top of the game, you know, if it's successful, the Wallabies, et cetera, if they're successful, that then, you know, there's a hope that gold dust will sprinkle down and everybody will want to start playing rugby again. Um, or, or like we did in 91, for example. And that's true to a certain extent, but the bottom of the game also needs funding as well. And the problem with rugby at the moment is that there's not enough funds for both those ends. Um, so there has to be a, a, a holistic look at how, how we do that and how rugby sort of solves the issues that it's currently got itself into where it's very top-heavy investment here. Um, which, you know, I understand that, but we have to look at how some of those funds that are all allotted to the professional top echelon of the game, how can some of those or some new funds be discovered to try and help those that pathway that gets people to that top echelon. But all not only gets them to that top echelon, but also allows junior clubs, um, clubs all over Australia to be able to enjoy and participate and watch, um, watch the game. Um, so I think that, for me, is um, the conundrum that needs to be solved by brighter brains than me. Now, mate, I could um, talk to you and listen to you talk about uh, Australian rugby and your career for hours uh, extra, but we're running out of time. So, Jackson, mm. I think it's time for my favourite segment. Are you ready? Yeah, let's go for it. 
What's going okay, on here? Michael. <laughs> Uh, at the end of the show, uh, I doubt you've listened before, but if you have, you would know that we do a quiz at the end of the show. Oh, so goodness. I'm going to be pitting you against Jackson. There are going to be five oh, questions, and they're all vaguely related to your career. So are you ready to go? <laughs> vaguely related. All right. <laughs> Very vaguely. Uh, Good luck, so- Jackson. <laughs> Good luck, Michael. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So your name's your butter. Uh as per tradition, we'll start with question one. So right. uh, I'm going to give you three events and I want you to order them from which happened first to which happened most recently. So three events, which happened mm-hmm. first to which happened most recently. So the three events are Saracens is founded, Vicarage Road, the home of Saracens, is built, and the Wallabies play their first international. Ooh. Okay, um, so the first one, the first is the oldest, is that right? Uh, yeah, so, yeah, the first is the oldest. Yeah, okay, yeah. okay, so Saracens is formed as the oldest. Uh, I'm not going to say if you're wrong um, or right, I will then keep going. Oh, okay, you want me to list the three, okay. Yeah. Saracens is the oldest, uh, Wallaby's first game is second, and um, Vicarage Road's third. Yeah, you've nailed it. Uh, Saracens, uh, 1876, Wallabies' first game in 1899, and Vicarage Road in 1922, uh, the home of Watford Oof. for any Premier League fans. So Michael's gone bundle up. Uh, well done, Michael. Good start. But we move on to question two. So, uh, What's, When's Jackson going to answer? Jackson doesn't get to answer any. Oh, you, you got it spot on. So... Um, oh, okay. Can't All right. He only gets it if I get it wrong. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, okay. yeah. <laughs> oh, I got it. Yeah. All right. Okay. Two. two. So, uh, question two. Yeah. Uh, which 1997 mm. film stars Will Smith as Agent J and Tommy Lee Jones as Agent K? Ah. Jackson. The Men in Black. Oh, I think Jackson buzzed in just first. Oh, I think you got a buzz. <laughs> Oh, I think Jackson no. said Jackson before you said the ad something. You're, Jackson, making, you're making these rules up as you go. I didn't know you had to buzz. Oh, mate, I think you've got to be listening a bit more carefully at the start because I did say Sorry. your name is your buzzer. No, nah, no worries right. at all. all right. But we'll give it to Jackson. Look, I, I reckon okay. we just no, I reckon we just scrapped no, no, that you, question. No, I, I cheated there badly. Some controversy. Oh, you, you, you got that one, Okay. I'll take it. If Michael's we'll saying it, it, I'll take it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Teach Jackson, me to, it'll teach what's me the answer? More uh, it is Men in Black. It is Men in Black, yeah. which is the nickname uh, of Saracens, of course, one of the nicknames of Saracens. So it's level up one all. That's controversial moment. The way we begin quiz, go down in history know. anyway. Gosh. Question three. So uh, you turned out uh, 72 times for the Wallabies. So the question is, a record at the time, which team achieved 72 NBA wins in the 1995-96 season. Michael. Michael, go for it. Oh. Uh, Chicago Bulls. That is correct. You've nailed it. So oh. you're two oh, one up, but you've got three correct. I reckon you correct. just beat me to that because I, I remember just at the start of lockdown watching the uh, Last Dance yeah. documentary. So yeah. I reckon yeah, I everyone sort of well. knows that now. Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, bit... Uh, of an unusual question, this question. Question four, uh, Michael, I'm sure, and Jackson, I'm sure you're aware of who Kevin Rudd is. You know him, yeah? Yes. Yep. Okay, yes. so what sport or sport uh, where a liner 
is a common umpiring decision did Kevin Rudd claim that he was the king of after visiting and playing at a school in Brisbane? Jackson. Jackson. Uh, it's in, in Queensland or wherever it was, it's called handball. But I, I do have to say it's called downball in Victoria and that's downball. the true name for it. <laughs> He's nailed it there. Classic schoolyard sport. Did you play any downball in your primary school or your high school days, Michael? I did. I played, um, yeah, a lot of, well, handball, we called it. Yeah, I did. But I didn't know that about Kevin Rudd. There you go. Yeah, yeah. No, it's but I did become... play handball. It's uh, more of a social media thing that's happened recently. Oh, I think, yeah. I think so, he played it at, at, a, at a school once and now he's sort of the king of it. And now uh, he's, he, uh, he signs and sends out um, signed handballs. <laughs> good, to see that, good to see that Kevin's sort of going up in the world. Yeah, <laughs> lovely to see the sport taken off a bit. Uh, but anyway, question five, mm. our final question. Uh, I think it's two all. It's all tied up. Yeah, it's a tiebreaker. Yeah, yeah question five. So uh, this question, Michael, it's a who am I question. So we're going to go down from five points all the way down to one point. I'm going to give you a series of clues. And once you buzz in uh, and get it wrong, you can't buzz in again until the other person gets it wrong. Okay. All right. Good to go. Uh, So for five points, I was born on October the 25th, 1881. Oof. Okay. I'm going to move on. Me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm going to move on. So, for four points, uh, my middle names, uh, and oh, yeah, October 25th is your birthday, I believe, as well. It is, yes. Michael, yes. is that true? It yes. Is. So, that's how yes. it relates to your career. So, uh, for four points, my middle names are, uh, it's a long one Diego, Jose, Francisco de Paula, Juan Nepomuceno, Maria de los Remodios, Cipriano, De La Santissima Trinidad Ruiz. Those are my middle names. Uh, Jackson. Jackson. Have a stab? Uh, Pablo Picasso. Pablo Picasso. Bit of a drum roll. He's absolutely correct. Oh, well done. Wow. It's got it early. Very well done. How'd you get that? Well done, Jackson. I I know that fact. Really? How he just had so many middle names. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Gosh. Well done. Great, great get, Jackson. I don't don't remember. Yeah, I don't know. I don't remember how I know that, but I just, I remember looking it up, saying, like, finding out that he had so many uh, middle names. Wow. Yeah. There you go. I've learned something. I reckon he's got about 15 middle names there. Don't want to count them. Yeah, I, I. from what I remember, it, they're all saint names and early in yeah, early yeah. Spain in that sort of era, very religious. So yeah. just all the all the middle names are all names of saints. Wow. Yeah. Uh, now, as much as I'd like to talk about religion in Spain, uh, for those playing at home, <laughs> I'll just go through the last clues for three points. Right. I spent most of my adult life in France, a country which has a museum dedicated to my work. For two points, I was part of the 20th century cubism and Michael. surrealism mov- movement. <laughs> <laughs> and for one point, I'm known for pieces such as The Weeping Woman and, and one of the most famous painters of all time. Of course, Michael, it is Pablo Picasso. Uh, Jackson mm. did very well to get that. It's finished up 6-2. Well done, so Jackson. well done, Jackson. Well done. Thrashing. Yeah, Michael, An thank absolute you. thrashing. Yeah. <laughs> 
Michael, one of the lowest moments you've had in your career, I bet. I know, I know. It goes, yeah, absolutely. I'm devastated. I'm going to go in the corner and cry in a minute. <laughs> you won't Every be forgetting time he that one. Pablo Picasso, he's just going to remember now. I remember Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been an absolute delight having you on, mate. You've been super generous with your time, so a big thank you pleasure. for coming on. Thanks, Harper. Yeah, Thanks, thank Jackson. Michael. My pleasure, mate. And um, look after yourselves down there in lockdown and all that sort of thing. Stay safe, huh? Thanks very much. Thank you. Really appreciate that. And how good was that, Harper? Very, very good indeed. Michael Liner, great guy, gave us heaps of time. Super good. Yeah, thank you, Michael, for coming on. Uh, we really appreciate it. New sport, rugby. We don't really know much about it. We did try and learn as much as we could. Um, but, yeah, thank you again, Michael. Yeah, having him on the show has definitely uh, piqued my interest in rugby. And speaking of uh, interest in rugby, we actually got our hands on Michael Liner's book. Uh, it's his autobiography, sent it over, and it's called Blindsided, and I could not recommend that more highly. It's a really great book. It goes into pretty much the same stuff that we had in the podcast, but with in even more depth and some little extra stuff on top. So get your hands on that if you can. Yeah, more than definitely. Harper, where, where can they find us on the socials, mate? On the socials, uh, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at WDWBpod. If you follow us on Twitter, we might actually start posting, so uh, that would be good. And you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash WDWBpod or just where do we begin? Speaking of the Facebook, we're not doing a discussion this weekend. Um, we Harper's got exams, so we don't have a lot of time to get it recorded and edit it, but it will be back, so don't worry. Yeah, it'll be back better than ever. And, uh, yeah, if you enjoy this podcast, if you're a new fan, a rugby fan that's just found us, or an old fan that's been listening since day one, give us a shout-out to your mates uh, because word of mouth is the best way to share a podcast. And I'm going to set a challenge, Jackson. I'm going to set a challenge for our listeners. I want you, if you enjoy this podcast, or even if you didn't enjoy it, share it with three of your friends by the end of the week. And that would be hugely appreciated. It will help us grow, get even better guests and even better production, better overall. And uh, what about our Patreon, Harper? Where can they find us? Our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash WDWBpod if you want to support us financially. Or Jackson, uh, do you reckon they should give us a review as well? Yeah, definitely. Five-star review. I mean, if you don't like it, give it your own review, but we'd love a five-star review. It gets us up the charts and gets more people to find us. Yeah, exactly. And... Yeah, share it with all your mates. But, Jackson, I believe we've got some music this week. Yeah, who have we got, Harper? Okay, Christian Walker has a new debut single. He's a solo artist from down here in Melbourne. We love supporting our local artists, especially in this tough time. So he's got a brand new single. It's really, really good. Definitely worth another listen after you listen this time. It's called Homesick, and it's been a long episode. So should we go straight to it? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, thanks for listening, guys. Here's Homesick by Christian Walker. never felt homesick of a place I've never known I've only felt hopeless in the face of the unknown But with you, I feel all these things And I've never seen a sunrise in the places that I'd grown I'd only felt the moonshine in the memories that I held But with you 
My home. 